He did not travel far now to see rare birds, but his passion for them was as deep as it had always been. It had begun when he was a child, living out of his parents' grocery shop in Kentish Town. He could remember vividly his first awareness that the world was inhabited by anything other than humans. He had been seven and a half, and he and some other boys had broken into a derelict house, still frightening and empty after the war, but showing no actual sign of bomb damage. There was only one piece of furniture in the house, a wooden cupboard which stood in the corner of the living room. Inside it was a stuffed kestrel. He had known that it was a bird, but he had never seen a bird like it. It had fascinated him, and he had fought off the other boys for possession of it. He had taken it to his school teacher, who had named it magically, and had introduced him to the local Natural History Society, where she made him a junior member. Bird-watching became a secret passion, shared only with other bird-watchers. He could never have admitted at school, especially at his grammar school, what he did at weekends. As it was, he never quite belonged there. It was a relief to find other people who were as interested, as fanatically interested as he was, and he spent more and more time watching birds or travelling to see rarities. His only close friends were bird-watchers. Then he had found Rushy. He had come there first, of course, to see the birds, itching most weekends from London in the spring and autumn, sleeping in the hut near the putting green or in the ladies' toilets. But he liked the place, too. He felt that it was his place. It was small enough to know well. He made trips to Shetland and the Silly Isles, but there he always felt a tourist. He always came back to Rushy. It had always been known as a good place to see big numbers of common migrants, but Tom found rarities. Occasionally he found spectacular rarities, and the reputation of the village grew and spread. Rushy became the property of every bird club and young ornithologist group. The dudes and the RSPB members, the wealthy amateurs of the bird-watching world, who stayed in the hotel where he worked, did so because they hoped to see Golden Oriole and Woodchat Shrike, the rarities for which he had made the place famous. He felt that it was a responsibility, and he missed the old freedom. Now, ironically, he only ever saw other people's birds. It was true that when the last guest had finished lunch, and only Terry was left in the kitchen, and he walked into the blue anchor just on closing time, all the twitchers knew him, gathered round him to ask his advice, to tell him what had been seen. Very rarely did he miss anything good— Someone would leave a message for him at the hotel if there was a bird in the area which was known to be new for him. Very rarely did he have to buy his own drinks. But at every rarity there would be a gaggle of birders with tripods, telescopes, and cameras. He was always one of a crowd. He missed the excitement and the glory of being the first to see a rarity. Now it was May, and the wind had been blowing from the southeast all week. A wind from the southeast in spring brings migrants from Europe and Africa and Siberia, and it brings vagrants, birds with no reason to be in this country, arriving only by accident and because of the wind. Even on the bad days, when he worried about Sally and money and worked overtime in the afternoon making tea for the children, Tom knew which way the wind was blowing. On the Friday night, listening to the shipping forecast on his cheap transistor in his small and dirty bedroom, as he heard the bland, objective voice report the possibility of mist and fog patches at dawn, he knew that the next day would be special.
It mattered more to him that night than anything else that he find a rare bird, more than caring for Sally and Barnaby, more than finding work that he enjoyed. He phoned Sally in Fen Key, explaining that he would not be across to see her. He had tried to be tender, sympathetic, but she had been off-hand and indifferent. He had considered cancelling his plans because she frightened him more when she was distant and cold than when she was hysterical. When she had taken the overdose, she had been deadly, icily calm. But even while he thought about taking the bus to Fenke, staying the night in the cottage with Sally and Barnaby, he knew that he would not do it. Because the wind was blowing from the southeast, and the night migrants reaching the coast at dawn would meet and be grounded by a bank of fog, and there was nothing more compelling than spring migration in perfect conditions. The night porter saw to